My name is Stacy Sargent Lawton, and I'm a hospital chaplain. Each week on this podcast, a few fellow chaplains will join me to discuss an episode or two of the great TV hospital drama, ER, from our unique perspectives as spiritual caregivers. This is ER Chaplains Watching ER. Father, please protect my soul. Hi, and welcome to ER Chaplains Watching ER. I am Stacy Sargent Lawton, and with me today I have three other wonderful fellow chaplains. Sarah Jane Moran. Say hi. Hello. Welcome back. Glad to have you back for week two. And Deborah Gaddis Reeves. I'm here. And for the first time ever on ER Chaplains Watching ER, we have with us Carrie Nettles. And since this is her first time, I'm going to let Carrie introduce herself a little more. Hi, thanks for inviting me to join y'all. I'm sorry I had to miss last week, um, but I'm excited to be part of this conversation and this project. Uh, it's fun. I'm one of the friends with whom Stacy would text back and forth furiously. Why don't they have a chaplain for this scene? Um, <laughs> this is really fun. I, I grew up watching ER as well. When it, it aired originally, I was in high school. Um, I don't remember if I started watching from the very first episode or kind of when I got started, but I know I watched through to the end. I can rem remember watching with my mom as well. And like like you said last week, I have always watched uh, television and movies when there's bloody parts sort of through uh, my fingers, kind of <laughs> wincing, like, oh, it's so gross. And I could have never imagined that one day I would be standing in the trauma bay um, surrounded by blood and um, talking to someone and being a non-anxious presence to someone who's missing parts of their body mm. um, because for sure when I would watch these medical shows I'm like oh it's so gross <laughs> um, yeah so I work as a pediatric chaplain at a child advocacy center here in upstate South Carolina we are uh, both a rape crisis and a child advocacy center and so um, I will do uh, spiritual play with the children who uh, come to our center, and I uh, am on call to report to any of the ERs in the county when there is a rape kit to be done um, with anyone from toddler to uh, geriatric. So that's, um, that's the chaplaincy I'm doing right now. I also do some PRN in another county. Um, in Anderson once in a while. Um, Explain yeah. to our listeners what PRN is in case they don't know. Oh, yeah, sorry. Um, so as needed. Um, so I'm part of a pool of chaplains who are on call uh, to share the, the call rotation for uh, nights and weekends. All right. Thank you so much, Carrie. And even though it's your first show, where you are going to jump right in um, as we start to talk about episode two of ER, which is titled Day One. Um, so, Carrie, give me the bullet. Okay. 
Well, we start off seeing uh, Dr. Susan Lewis is responding to uh, an infant respiratory distress. Uh, something has lodged in this child's throat and she's trying to get it out and the parents are standing off to the side nervously, crying and wringing their hands and praying for the best. Um, Carter gets woken up to come and take care of a bunch of German tourists who have food poisoning. Um, so as a med student, he gets the grunt work. Um, Green is walking into his shift and is immediately told that they've got um, four flying in an air flight. Uh, there was a car accident, DUI versus family. Um, later on, Susan and... Um, no, Carter and Lewis, I'm sorry, um, have a chest pain patient, and there's some disagreement about the best um, way to treat him. Uh, we learned that Dr. Ross has not checked in with uh, Nurse Hathaway in the eight weeks since she overdosed, um, and his, his coworkers are kind of curious about that and inviting him to, to think more about that. Um, let's see. I also mixed in my notes for both. And then um, issues that arise are um, issues of uh, justice and staff support and advanced directives. And um, some of the closing scenes of this episode are um, some tender moments between an elderly married couple who are um, closing a chapter of their lives together. And um, Ross does show up at Nurse Hathaway's house by the end of the episode, um, bearing flowers and, and kind of interrogating uh, what is his role in her life and, and this OD that, that happened. All right. Thank you for that recap, Gary. Mm -hmm. So, Sarah Jane, jump in. I thought one of the most beautiful themes in this episode was the beauty of beginnings versus endings, um, especially having to do with love stories. We have a wedding that comes in that is also affected by food poisoning. Mm -hmm. At least some of the party is, and some of them are not. And the ones that are still well flood the waiting room and continue the reception with dancing and music. Mm -hmm. And contrasting that, we have um, the end-of-life uh, time with the, the two elderly patients and the husband is saying goodbye to his wife after realizing that she is ready to let go. So comparing that new love and that dancing and that music and that beautiful chaos to the death and the silence and that type of love as well and how the staff just looks on in both of those cases with, with happiness and respect. Yeah, Carrie. Sarah, I think that goes back to one of your points, I believe it was your point last week, about the ER being a sacred space. This is really holy ground where these beginnings and endings are happening. Um, and you see that when they bring the rituals into the ER um, uh, that we usually see out in the church and reception um, type celebration. And um, I also love that contrast of the, the joyous 
um, celebratory music from the wedding spilling over into the ER um, at the same time that this husband is singing very tenderly to his wife as she dies. Thanks for raising that. Yeah, absolutely. I loved the the older couple, Mr. and Mrs. Franks, um, so much. And I'll have to say, I was watching this episode yesterday, which was my first wedding anniversary. Um, and the bride coming in with food poisoning was hitting a little too close to home because I ate bad shrimp on our honeymoon. So it was bringing back all those memories for me. But um, but also just I was having a lot of feelings about seeing this older couple who'd been married a very, very long time. And the the new bride and groom that apparently the bride ate the German potato salad, which was the source of the food poisoning, and the groom did not. So he's there trying to sort of take care of her while she's puking her guts out. And then just across the room from them, there's this couple in their 80s who she is trying to tell her husband that she doesn't want to be intubated, doesn't want to be on a respirator, that she's ready to to let go and face the end of life. And he's not ready for that at all. So she's trying to comfort him at the same time. And there's there's one shot, and I missed it the first time I watched this episode, but the second time through I saw it, that it's just they're framed in the same shot, these two couples, that you see them at the same time. And actually, listeners, if you look on our Twitter page at chaplains underscore ER, I took a, a screenshot of that scene and put it on there because it was just so beautiful and moving, um, that the framing of the beginning and ending in the same scene. I saw that exact scene, Stacey, and thought the same thing. It's um, a glimpse of old and new and young and seasoned, but also just a reminder of for better or worse Mm -hmm. in sickness and in health. And then, of course, until death does this part. And um, the one thing, though, that struck me about that that I thought is pretty unrealistic is when... Um, that moment when she has just died and her elderly husband is singing to her and everybody is just stopped and, and watching. And I thought, I don't remember very many times in the ER when, when you're actually able to stop and look on a scene like that, a real life scene that is so meaningful to the viewers, but who has time in the ER to really do that? And that's when I think they you know, played a little bit with their um, Hollywood graces of being able to do that. <laughs> yeah, I agree. It wasn't the most realistic, but I'm glad they did play with it a little bit. It was a really powerful scene. And then George Clooney with his single tear, just, you know, Doug Ross was getting all emotional with that. And and that, that seeing that love between this older couple is the thing that finally gets him to go and see Carol, even though he's scared to see her doesn't know what to say to her after this apparent suicide attempt and he's still feeling guilty like maybe some of it was his fault and you know Mark Green has told him you just have to get over yourself and just go see her but nothing can really get him to do that until he he sees this couple and I think realizes how much he does love Carol and wants to preserve that relationship and um and he sucks it up and goes to see her yeah Carrie So while we're talking about this couple, um, I think it's a perfect opportunity for us to talk about when to call the chaplain, Mm -hmm. um, such as a new diagnosis or advanced directive and for helping um, accompany families in that transition from understanding that um, we came in for this kind of care and now we're going to get this kind of care. Um, Because that 
shifting that gear is really hard, especially because we live in a death-denying culture. And at one point, the husband actually says to her, you mean let her die? Um, as if we have a choice against death, as if it's not all ultimately, um, we're not all going to be visited by it. Um, so I think that's a, an important conversation. I know I saw it all the time in the ER, in the ICUs, um, I'm sure, Deborah, you probably saw it a lot too um, in your hospice work and, and it's pervasive for all of us. Another theme that runs throughout this episode and begins to, to build in subsequent episodes is that of um, psychiatric care. There is an older man who comes in and Dr. Lewis is very concerned about him because he is not at the stage of his life that he can care for himself any longer. And yet, because he is not violent or psychotic or homicidal, they claim that there is no place for him. And so they treat him for his uh, infections and dehydration and then send him back out on the street. This frustrates her greatly and it also, she's talking to her boyfriend later on about the situation, and he says that she needs to be very careful how she deals with other people's patients, and she says, all I care about is making a difference, and we see how that comes up against the difficulties that come with the politics of hospitals and healthcare. Mm -hmm. The part that I love about that older man is that the whole time, both times we see him, because he comes back into the hospital, mm -hmm. found wandering naked in the street in the middle of the night because he doesn't know where he lives. But he's so concerned about his dog. Yeah. That just breaks my heart. I need to feed my dog. Where are my dogs? So that's such a great little piece of humanity for all of us dog lovers that I have too. Um, that really brings it home how much he is stripped of his dignity at that point. Mm. Yeah, and that's a constant problem in hospitals today. I think just the lack of access to psychiatric care. I know in our ER, there is a whole section of, well, the emergency department, the ED, we call it usually, although Cialis commercials have ruined those letters for <laughs> emergency department and it still means erectile dysfunction in my head. But um, in our ED, there's a whole a whole section that is, is often used just to board psychiatric patients because there's no room for them on the psychiatric unit of the hospital. So we'll sometimes have 10 beds of our emergency department that are just taken up by people waiting sometimes for days for a bed to open up for them to get the psychiatric care that they need. Um, it's really frustrating. Yeah, Deborah. I think you guys are reminding me that, you know, as ministers, we are called to help others and to serve others. And there are so many ways that we would do that differently in a church setting to people that come into our church, whereas in the hospitals or in hospice agencies or other nonprofit service organizations, there are limitations on what we can do. And I, I did find that that was always a challenge to how to, um, you know, remain 
faithful to what is set before us, you know, in, in the hospitals by these overarching organizations. And just like this doctor who realizes that she can't just help somebody, she can't just make a difference if, you know, they're not going to allow her to admit this person to the appropriate, um, you know, care. And so it's like that, I think, sets us apart in some ways from church pastors in that our hands really are tied sometimes that, um, you know, you, you can't always serve like you feel you ought to, you know, or just to be able to help because there's so many things that stand in our way too in those situations at a hospital, especially. Hmm. And we could make that, let us feel powerless, but we always have to remember that, that the things we do are, are beyond our own power. And mm-hmm. sometimes when, even when it's frustrating, we have to rest in that and know that just presence, just listening, just human contact and touch can make a difference even when other things get in the way. Yeah, well said, Sarah Jane. I was thinking this week, my kids have been watching a new animated series based on the Trolls movie. (laughs) And there's one episode where um, Poppy, she's fallen out of the trees and they're afraid that, that she's gravely injured. And the the uh, troll nurse comes in and they have the ER-like music, <laughs> that uh, synthesizer, hip-hop-y sound. And she goes through all of these gyrations and, and finally declares, there's nothing more we can do, except that she only has a small sprain. <laughs> but I thought it was so funny that here we are in, you know, a, a child show and ER is such a cultural phenomenon that it it jumps over to all these other and is referenced in pop culture and in other television shows. Now, my, my children wouldn't recognize that that's what that was, but, but I <laughs> thought about that and noted it in my notes. That's really cool. Yeah, ER is everywhere right now, for sure. And just that notion of there's nothing more we can do. Um, one of the things that I love about hospital chaplaincy is that I think we are the ones who are able to step in when when a cure is not possible. There's still healing that can take place. And I think we see that again and again um, in ER, just like with the older couple that, yes, even though this woman is coming to the end of her life, there is healing in that relationship with her and her husband that needs to happen. That He needs to come to terms with the fact that this is her wish, that she doesn't want to have her, you know, her existence prolonged on a respirator that she wants to to spend the time that she has with her husband, you know, saying goodbye to him and loving him. And um, so there's there's healing happening there in that. Mm. Very well said. The really heavy theme in this episode, besides the end of life, is uh, the car accident mm-hmm. that occurs with the drunk driver. There is so much pervasive anger surrounding uh, this crash that you can feel in every member of the staff. And we have the father come in, and he only has a laceration to his head and um, a, a leg wound of some sort. Mm. His wife ends up passing away from her spinal fracture and bleeding out. And then the child has to have a major spleen surgery to uh, get her internal organs back into place. 
And it's, it's heartrending mm-hmm. because the child is calling for her mother, who we know is not going to make it by the time that we finally meet the father. The staff really invest time and, and energy and emotion into this case. Yeah. And the statement that I remember the most of it is, there's no justice, is there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Carrie. Right. And well, I was just going to add for our viewers, so the, um, the person who is suspected of a DUI and who they finally find out was certainly drunk when the accident occurred, he is unharmed. Mm-hmm. And um, he's, of course, in the ER as well. I just want to add that, add that for those who haven't watched it recently. So he is there. And then, of course, we have the contrast of this family that was um, severely injured when he ran the red light and he boned in. Yeah. And you can hear the arresting officer and some of the support staff actually uh, lament mm-hmm. the fact that he is relatively unharmed while this other family has been devastated. Um, It's it's really destroyed a family. And my heart particularly went out to the girl who was crying out repeatedly for her mother who was unresponsive. um, Because as someone who um, hones in on the spiritual care needs of the child, I'm noticing there's no child life there Mm -hmm. um, with her explaining what is happening to her. There's like one moment when Dr. Ross, the pediatrician, tells her um, that they're about to transition from the trauma bay to the OR. Um, But by and large, everything that they're doing to her body in that trauma bay, no one is beside her talking to her, explaining that to her. They're talking at her, not to her. Um, there's no chaplain there who is providing the the, the calm, loving, non-anxious presence, um, especially that a young child would need yeah. um, in this moment where she she can look across the trauma bay and see um, that not only is mom not responding audibly, but she can see that they're doing a lot of things to my mom. Mm-hmm. She's requiring a lot of intervention and, and the, the thing that, that I try and, and lift up to my staff uh, whenever I can and to any partners that we're working with or any support staff in the ER is that children have spiritual care needs too. That yes, that she's had this trauma to her body, but she's also had this trauma to her spirit. This is an incredibly scary time for her, um, not just for what's wrong with me, but Where's my mom? Where's my dad? What's going to happen next? Dr. Ross is the closest thing to a chaplain in this scene. He is shown holding her hand Mm -hmm. um, constantly throughout it. And of any explaining that does happen, you're totally correct. They are talking at her, which I would find, even though sometimes that's necessary, I think well-trained ER staff don't do that quite as much as they were in that scene. But Dr. Ross is the one showing compassion towards her, specifically says that when she comes out of surgery, her father will be there Mm -hmm. to see her, which I appreciated that he didn't make a leap about whether Mm -hmm. the mother was going to survive or not. He's not making promises that he can't keep, and he's offering her something familiar. And we hear when um, the the flight medic is passing off um, the patients to 
uh, county general doctors, and he's giving them kind of the rundown. We hear a drastically low GCS score um, that lets us know when chaplains, um, when we are paged down to the trauma bay for an incoming trauma, and we hear some of that, that helps us prepare for um, how we are going to then um, prepare ourselves to be with the families when they come in. Yeah, and about that, when the, when the helicopter arrives, it just seemed incredibly unbelievable to me that they're actually giving report to the doctors on the helipad. Are there, are there hospitals that do that? That just seemed so chaotic and, and wild to me. It's really good drama for TV, but I can't imagine that ever being good practice in an actual hospital. You can't even hear hardly. Right. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> like they got to be missing something. Still wearing his helmet of the helicopter. <laughs> I don't think that that would work. You're correct. But because they want to keep it in one scene, I think is why they treat it that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Carrie, were you going to say something? I was just going to say um, at our, our level one trauma center here in the update, the, um, the flight uh, nurse is, is walking in with them and giving the report as they walk in. But yeah, it's not happening underneath those propellers. Right. Same, same with ours. Yeah. We never go out to see the helicopter. <laughs> yeah. so going, going back to the um, person who is in the ER, but with really very little than maybe a bruise, um, but he is the one who hit the family in the um, accident. And, he he wakes up and he doesn't remember any of that and he's just um, very careless in the way that he's asking questions about, oh, what have I done now, you know, and that sort of thing. And so you have the staff members having to engage him and provide care to him um, even when they know more of the story. And so you hear that comment about there not being any justice but that is very true, I think, to an ER setting where you have oftentimes both sides of the accident. You have, you know, a person who has inflicted pain on others and um, then the victim. And so um, you almost have to suspend all that judgment in those moments in order to provide that care. And I think that's true for, you know, all of our ER staff, but certainly chaplains and then it just goes without saying that we're all human. And so it, it certainly ruffles you, you know, it ruffles your feathers and it makes you feel sick to your stomach sometimes to have to provide that same care to someone who, you know, it feels like doesn't deserve it. Right. Yeah, and I just wanted to um, touch for a moment on Dr. Benton is the one who goes out to tell the, the husband, father from the car crash that his wife is going to die. And he actually uses those words, which I was like, great job, Dr. Benton. Because a lot of times it is really hard for physicians not to get caught up in medical language. And, and you know, a family member really needs to hear the word die or dead um, in order to start to believe it because your mind just fights against that reality so much. And, and I've had doctors come into a room with family members and 
tell them, you know, exactly what happened to the person who was injured. And, and then one time they said, um, and his injuries were incompatible with life and then walked out of the room and the family has no idea what that means. So they're, they're asking me, well, you know, is he going to get to go home tonight? Will we get to see him soon? And so, yeah, it's really good that Dr. Benton broke it down and told this man plainly that your wife is going to die. Um, so he handled that well, but then he doesn't even take a breath before he starts asking the man about organ donation. That part, not so great. Um, I think he very quickly then realized that this guy needs a minute to take it all in and, and then was really good at, at physically comforting him, just putting his arm around him and being with him, offering him a caring presence. So, yeah. A lot of times people use euphemisms for death in hospital. And right. That's something that we as chaplains are aware of, that that's not always helpful. Um, people do not expire like milk. <laughs> Passing away is a very popular one, and I understand why. But when we are in crisis situations, we definitely need to use words that are more factual and do not leave any room for doubt. And it might sound mean, but in those moments, that is what is needed. Right. Absolutely. Do y'all have any other ones that people have used? Passed Incompatible on. with life. Passed on. Crossing over. <laughs> it's nice and vague. Mm -hmm. yeah. No longer with us. Oh, uh, yeah. Which is, it, you know, I mean, again, in my work with children, they're such literal concrete thinkers. You really have to say the words and be quite quite clear, um, because to a child's mind, um, no longer with us means, well, did they run down to the store? Where right. did they go? When are they coming back? Mm -hmm. And I think in moments of crisis, even, you know, the most intelligent adult really just needs it as basic as a child. Mm -hmm. Like we need to be so clear. Because I, you're right, our brains can't shift that gear. Like they are in trauma themselves um, when when they're taking in this new reality that you're presenting to them. So there's so much that they, you know, family members and patients can't even hear uh, when we're saying it to them. Yeah, and sometimes they need to hear it again and again, which seems cruel, but... But they, I mean, your mind just fights against that because, of course, you don't want to believe that your your spouse, your child has just died. And mm -hmm. um, and just every time is just a chipping away at that denial, I think. Right. I think well, another piece. With... Sarah Jane. Go ahead, Deborah, because I was going to change the subject. Oh, well, <laughs> I'm so sorry. I was just going to add that, um, you know, I think we often know that a person has already died before we enter a room, and we may be the, the one in the room that is receiving the questions, but we really have to allow the doctor to, to deliver that news. And so, um, you know, there, there are just a lot of awkward moments like that as chaplains have kind of um, you know, staying in the silence with people and not being able to um, state the truth until it's been given by a physician. And then we're often the ones that have to 
you for your reiterating that, as Stacey said. Um, but there's just there's a lot around the protocol of delivering that kind of news, and we often are present, but we're not usually the ones that that deliver that news. Okay. Thank you for covering that, Deborah. That that's a very good point for those that aren't familiar with how it works in the ER, that chaplains are not the ones that deliver that news. It's, it's always another staff member. Right. Well, we've dealt with some really heavy um, themes in this episode, but there are a couple of, of pretty funny parts, too, because you always have to toss in that sense of humor. <laughs> we, have, um, we have the food poisoning. Dr. Carter gets to do a lot of rectal exams. <laughs> and the nurse by his side has a lot of good facial expression. So that's a good way to, to keep things light for us, not for them. Um, and then also, you know, it, we're talking about how the theme of love is in this episode. And with love also comes the um, theme of sex. And when I have <laughs> sexy time, I think of an ER bathroom. <laughs> you know, and... And that's where um, Dr. Green was getting it on with his wife, which, which makes it better. But that was a really funny scene when they pressed the um, alarm button on the wall <laughs> by accident and the whole crash code team comes in and catches them in the act. <laughs> yeah, I actually put in my, in my um, notes that uh, Dr. Green's wife passes her bar exam. They have celebratory sex in the hospital bathroom. Ew. Because <laughs> I just cannot imagine a grosser place. No. I, I really no. can't. Deb? I just want to I want to go ahead and, and lay it out there that in all of the TV shows that I've watched, you know, that take place in hospitals and primarily in the ER, um, you know, there's always sex. And <laughs> yet I never came across people having sex in the ER in real life. I mean, maybe that happens, but, or maybe they just kind of hid that because I was a chaplain, you know, and, <laughs> and they have to be on the risk behavior. I don't know, but does anybody have any fun stories that you'd like to share about that? No, I kept waiting I, for I, it. I've, but... I've experienced that, but I would really rather not share. Okay, after recording, well, we got to hear that. Happens. At least we know Hollywood is not stressed. It was not romantic at all. No, no. I'm sure. It was, it was, no. <laughs> I will say anytime that have... the, um, anytime the elevators at the hospital are not working, I always wonder, you know, somebody, somebody getting it on in the elevator right now, like they do in Grey's Anatomy sometimes, but probably not. Well, sex is part of life too, so. True. It has its place. Usually not in the bathroom. No. We also have Carter um, and uh, Liz, the girl who comes in with um, a poison ivy rash. So let's toss that in there as well. The mm -hmm. whole time I wanted to just slap him across the face. Be like, no, dude, no. <laughs> Bless his heart. He had no idea. Uh, what? How would we talk about her? How would we name this behavior that we see from her? Because this is not the first time she's shown up. 
Yeah, this is the second time we've seen her, and hypersexual, um, definitely. And the, I've I've had visits at our psychiatric hospital where I have been warned by the staff that this patient is hypersexual, and yeah, they try mm-hmm. to come on to everybody. But um, but she last time she was coming on to Doctor Green, and then this time it's it's Carter she's hitting on. I'm not sure what her what her deal is, but yeah, Carter was way more into it <laughs> than Doctor Green was. Yeah, she has to cause pain to herself in order to get that, though. I mean, she had she burned herself, like her her crotch area and uh, <laughs> upper thighs, I guess. And then she managed to get uh, poison ivy in a very painful place, I would yeah. guess. So, and she's in the next things. episode as well. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So, oh, that's right. Yeah, she comes back. So, yeah, she... She might turn out to be um, a character that we see more often. But that, I think it just goes to show that you do see a lot of strange things in the ER. And um, yeah, that's making realistic. sure that, that she, this kind of thing is not left out. <laughs> okay, any other um, thoughts on episode two before we move on? I would just point out the theme of forgiveness. Uh, in fact... Uh, regarding uh, Carol's overdose, Dr. Green tells Dr. Ross, you're going to have to forgive yourself. Mm. Um, And as viewers, only into the second episode, um, we still haven't quite filled in all the gaps. We have some of the pieces of that puzzle, um, but we're, we're in the process of learning that story. What is their history? What happened between them? And why does Dr. Ross believe that uh, her attempted suicide uh, is, is somehow connected to him or, or reflects on their relationship together? Yeah, and I do just want to um, also, going back to Mr. and Mrs. Franks, um, the woman who comes in and, and dies by the end of the episode, um, she did not have any kind of advanced directive on paper. And that's something that as chaplains, one of our jobs at my hospital at least is to, um, to offer advanced directives. Every patient when they check into the hospital is asked if they would like to speak to someone about a healthcare power of attorney. And that's a form that, that designates someone to be their healthcare decision maker if they're not awake and cognizant to make their own decisions. And it asks them specifically about their wishes on life support, organ donation, and tube feeding. And gets people to think about those things while they are in a state of mind that they can make those decisions. So that when the time comes, when they're not able to do that, their family doesn't have to wonder what they would want so I would just, I think it's good for anybody, no matter how young and healthy you might think you are, <laughs> to have to have those kinds of conversations with your loved ones and to, to get it down on paper somewhere. Yep. That's a pretty large part of our job mm-hmm. when we're not dealing with trauma is, is to deal with advanced directives. And we can we can take time to talk to you and make sure that you understand your options completely, and we, nobody on staff is there to tell you what to do. There is no right or wrong answer, but it's a way to talk out um, your wishes and to keep your dignity mm-hmm. however you see that in, in your end of life. And I would say another reason we see staff calling in chaplains for these conversations is to help 
mitigate some of the conflict. And you see some of the conflict in the family um, depicted in this scene too, because initially her husband is saying, you know, put her on the respirator, do mm-hmm. whatever you can. Um, and then after she um, gets some hydration and wakes up a little bit, she's able to speak for herself then. And, and Dr. Green is very specifically asking her, what do you want? And we hear from her that her wishes are actually uh, quite the opposite of her husband's wishes. Yeah. Um, and, and when loved ones and spouses and, and parents and children are in conflict over those wishes, what do I want for myself versus what do I want for my spouse? Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes that's when the staff like to pivot and actually call the chaplain. True, very true. We also see it as, as sort of grace and mercy for our family members not to have to make those decisions if they're already stated or written, mm-hmm. you know, and then like our, our our husband doesn't have to make that decision on our behalf, mm-hmm. if, having never had the conversation with me. Right. Okay. Anybody have a favorite moment or favorite line from the episode that they like to share? The, um, the opening scene is very dramatic. And it's, it's a feel-good scene. You're on the edge of your seat for a while, and there's a baby on the table, which always heightens that drama. And they, they're showing the parents in the background, you know, very worried about the outcome. And Dr. Lewis is concentrating so hard. I will say that the, um, the baby looked incredibly fake on the table. Yeah. <laughs> it was um, quite a contrast to see the rubber baby go to the, the crying baby. But you know what? In this particular case, maybe that was okay because we just really needed to know that that, that infant was going to be okay. And to see the relief on the parents' face, they were excellent actors in that. And it, it was just, you were ready to go for the next part of the, the episode. I think my favorite really was the elderly couple and just kind of that exchange. But I'm thinking in particular of when um, the husband feels the tension between the doctor um, and his wishes of, that he has expressed that his wife wants everything and needs everything to be done, um, don't let her die kind of language. And he throws out there, she's the grandmother of 13 or the great-grandmother of 13 or something that really... Um, you know, personalized his situation and really um, reminded that doctor that she's not just a patient, you know, but she has this life. She has all these people that love her and are counting on her. And I really did love that. I think that is um, very true to the situations that we see that um, we're providing care to people that we often do not know, but to so many other people that, patient is possibly the world to them. And so it's a good reminder of what is at stake in this line of work. Mm. I don't know that I could call it a favorite, um, but one of the things I most appreciated um, 
is that tension that we see among the staff when they are reflecting on um, the outcomes for the family versus the outcomes for the drunk driver. And someone does articulate that there is no justice. And the unspoken question uh, around this situation is where is God in all of this? And how is this fair? And, you know, why does the drunk get to live and the family members die? And that's something that we not only see uh, pervasively in the hospital setting as chaplains, but some of the questions we ask ourselves um, is how do perfectly healthy, you know, children and adults uh, all of a sudden get cancer and, you know, people who have routinely abused their bodies with substances and chemicals um, for decades um, still kicking, you know, and just coming in for some basic maintenance care. It, it's the question that we have to to live into and work through uh, day in and day out. And I appreciate the fact that they illustrate it with this, this story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for me, it was just the those moments with Mr. and Mrs. Franks, um, him showing his love to her in those last moments and singing to her. And even though it was totally unrealistic for the whole ER staff to stop and watch, I, I still loved it that that was they were recognizing the holiness of that moment. And um, I feel like as chaplains, we more so than the doctors and the nurses, we often do have the time and the space to stop and recognize those sacred moments and, and appreciate them and appreciate the fact that God is there in the midst of all that. Okay, so that wraps up episode two. And we'll be back in just a few seconds to talk about episode three, Going Home. So, episode three, going home. Sarah Jane, are you ready? Because I need a recap. Stacked. Stacked, (laughs) I tell you. I'm going to give you the bullet. Carol Hathaway has been on medical leave for attempted suicide by drug overdose. She prepares to return to work, but struggles with feeling overwhelmed. Humor is everyone's line of defense, and she takes part in it, too. A mysterious Alzheimer's patient serenades the hospital with show and big band tunes. When she's not singing, she's sobbing. The staff works to figure out her identity, especially Dr. Carter, who develops an attachment. Susan Lewis has a heart attack patient. She chooses to treat with medicine therapy instead of surgery, and she then must attend a humiliating teaching review with her peers. Dr. Ross has an infant who requires a spinal tap, and the patient's father passes out cold. Hathaway jokes about a slow Monday, but then pinballs between two cases which require the crash cart. Mark Green deals with a Mrs. Chung, who is an obvious domestic abuse case. The young son, Frank Chung, translates for his mother, but when the father shows up, the family refuses any further assistance. Carol Hathaway is dating orthopedic surgeon Taglieri. Doug Ross attempts to win her back, but she refuses. Mrs. Packer comes in for stitches in her arm. She also has leukemia, but is refusing further treatment. She leaves against advice and is readmitted for a transfusion after she passes out. She recognizes the singing patient, Madame X, as Mary Cavanaugh, a famous World War II singer. Liz Proserpina comes back after Dr. Carter, and he's then warned by someone in X-ray against these kinds of sexual liaisons. The ER crew finally gives Carol a surprise welcome back party. She says, 
saving me was like a gift. Mm. Bravo, well done. So yeah, I found it interesting that the episode is titled Going Home um, in reference to Carol going back to work. But um, in many ways, I guess it does feel like home to her. Uh, but she's really nervous about going back and other people are really awkward about what to say to her, which is so true to life when there is a suicide attempt. That's just, there's so much social anxiety around that. People do not know how to respond to suicide, whether it's an, a successful attempt or an unsuccessful attempt. Um, there's just, people want to keep their distance from that and they don't know how to tiptoe around it. So on Carol's first day back, Doug is really worried about everybody being sensitive to her and keeps checking with everybody to make sure that nobody has said anything wrong. But a lot of the staff, as Sarah Jane said, are using humor to cope with it. And Carol kind of is too, even though we do see her having flashbacks to when she was there as a patient. Um, and it is a difficult thing for her to come back there in some ways. Sarah the title going home, um, it definitely does deal with the nurse Hathaway, but I think it's actually a direct quote from Mary Cavanaugh. She, she's so anxious the whole episode in her Alzheimer's because she doesn't understand what's going on, which is why she's crying. And when they finally realize her identity and Dr. Carter is standing with her at the elevator, and she says, what am I doing here? And he says, you're going home. And she repeats, I'm going home. And suddenly her story starts to come back to her. Suddenly her world starts to come back. Suddenly she remembers her granddaughter's name. Mm. And she can show her appreciation to Dr. Carter in that moment by saying, I love you. I love you. I love you. Yeah, that was so sweet. And uh, I love Rosemary Clooney. George Clooney's family contributed a lot to season one. So this is his Aunt Rosemary. Um, her son, his cousin Miguel Ferrer, was in the very first episode as the 40-year-old potential cancer patient and Rosemary Clooney actually pops up again later in season one which I love and um she's still got the pipes so I thought it was really cool that they made her a famous singer in the show as well as in real life and it's also realistic because even um dementia patients often will remember songs after they forget everything else and music can be such a powerful way to reach them a lot of times especially songs from when they were young so I thought that was good Well, going along with Dr. Carter, dealing, dealing with that character, he also, this whole episode, I feel like he's really trying to develop a sense of listening with the patient. And a lot of times that gets him into trouble because he starts falling behind on his other duties. So the other doctors and the surgeons start to snap at him because he's spending too much time at the bedside. So that kind of leads us into the question, of how much time do you spend with a patient? Is it all about just saving their life or can you share moments of humanity with each mm. other? Of course, with the, with the chaplain, the answer is always yes, that we are available to do that. And I do think it's wonderful that Carter sees that as part of his job. He's probably just going to have to rein it in so he doesn't get on the staff's bad side as well. Yeah, and I'm really hoping that part of Carter is learning from his mistakes because, and this was really never referenced again in the episode, but in the pilot episode, he's dealing with a, a 
cop who shot himself accidentally during an argument with his wife. And it was like a clear spousal abuse case. And everything this man is saying to Carter is is a huge red flag. But Carter just totally misses it all because he's kind of just rushing through, you know, the the doctoring part of it and trying to stitch the guy up or whatever. And and misses the fact that he's basically saying he he almost tried to kill his wife just now. Mm hmm. It's his first IV. And he IV, says, that's it. I knew it was yes, something. It's his first IV that he has ever put in. And, and he says, everything's going to be much better from here on out. Yeah. That's his final line. That this dude who's just trying to kill his wife. Yeah. Yes. I, Deb. I think that leads well into the, the scene that we saw about the domestic violence this episode. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I... I mean, all of us know that that is prevalent in our society, and, and we've seen that in the ER many times. It, it was so frustrating to me that that conversation was taking place in front of the father who <sighs> likely is the one who is causing that, you know, and abusing his wife and possibly even his son, and, and they're confronted right in front of him. You know, I don't know if that was just an accident, you know, in that situation or if they, you know, show that this happens in other episodes or what, but that is just, you know, not how it happens in the real ER, I don't think, or at least not today. Well, that's certainly an ethics consult, I think, uh-huh. uh, to call in and, and help the staff, the doctor, whomever's having that conversation realize that. Um, while your intentions might be good, um, the impact of what you're doing can um, be compounded later. Uh, it, if this husband and father was abusing the family, um, they're just going to get it twofold now mm-hmm. that he's been sort of publicly questioned and shamed and humiliated. That's going to be the wife and son's fault. Um, in that dynamic, you know, that he, that can get used to justify further um, mistreatment or, or outright assault. Yeah, I mean, this, this kid took a huge risk in telling Dr. Green, finally, when they're alone, that, yeah, his father is the one who beat his mother. And then Dr. Green says in front of the father, you know, says to the father, well, your son told us you hit your wife. And then the kid has to go home with that father who is probably going to punish him severely for that. And it just made me so angry. And the fact that an interpreter is never called for, that they just allow the son to act as interpreter for his mother. This is a child and the mother should have the chance to talk to a doctor directly without her son. You know, I'm sure there are things that she doesn't want to say to her son that she might need to say to a doctor and an interpreter should be there to facilitate that. And if I were the chaplain there, I would be advocating for an interpreter to get there. Absolutely. I would be raising cane over that because one of the most important reasons, I think, to call in an interpreter and not let family and friends interpret from one another is because you don't know which part of the truth are getting intentionally left out Mm -hmm. um, or misdirected or, you know, euphemisms are getting used. not always with malicious intention. Sometimes people think that they are being helpful um, and helping 
their loved one, um, cover up issues of shame or, or whatever may be present. But that's precisely why we need uh, a non-biased party there interpreting the word um, so that the family member doesn't have to uh, take on that sense of responsibility for um, being the bearer of someone else's truth or helping them hide it, whatever's going on. Yeah. Well, and also understanding sensitivity to the situation. Obviously, Dr. Green really had none, and the family's going to suffer as a result of it. I feel like if he understood the cycle of abuse better, then he would understand that that is a huge no-no. And when you say raising Cain, I know that you meant among the staff to make sure that things would be going yes. on, mm-hmm. not with the family. Right. The family needs to be dealt with very carefully. And the honest truth is they could have done everything right and that family could have still walked back to the same situation. Right. I can think of many times when I thought I could be the hero. I could talk them out of what was going on. I could end this cycle. It is not up to me. And that's right. what the, the one advocate that was there did finally say. You can't make them go to the shelter if they don't want to. And that can be really humbling. And of course, it causes anger. But we do need to realize, again, that that's not our responsibility to be the savior in that case. We have to leave that to a higher power. Mm -hmm. Well said. I think on a lighter note, maybe we can say, go back to that humor for a moment, because... um, we do see humor being so much a part of their care of one another, the staff. You know, I'm speaking in particular about, um, you know, their nurse coming back after eight weeks of being out following an attempted suicide, and they hit the ground running with humor. Mm-hmm. Um, we said this last week that it is so common in ER setting to have humor and to embrace humor. Mm. I think that they did an excellent job of portraying a reality of the ER, and that is that we, we rarely have time, or I should say, I mean, chaplains make time, but, you know, most of our, our staff in the ER, they rarely have time to really sit in the emotional, you know, turmoil that is life and that mm. is a reality in um, working in crisis. And so... Um, I really loved the way that they did that in this um, episode of just, I think that was real. I think that is how um, many of our coworkers in the ER would have responded in welcoming home one who, you know, attempted suicide and they provided care to her. They saw her in her most vulnerable situation and yet they embraced her with humor and in some ways that helped them get over it and then lead to you know, hugging her and and acknowledging the reality of what is her life now. Mm. Well, and and to your point, I think one of the ways that that further illustrates the reality of our ER staff is uh, not only using humor to cope, um, but particularly a. a kind of humor, a gallows humor. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, the average viewer could watch some of this and cringe at some of the jokes that they made. Um, but they're a bit rough, uh, a bit 
a bit rough around the edges. Um, but a lot of the ways that I've seen staff cope with um, life and death and all of the questions that remain, the mysteries of why these people survive and these people don't, is that sort of um, gallows humor. I don't know any other way to describe it. Well, one of the things that, that people also say about um, staff in the ER is that they're superstitious, that they have their own quirks. And one of the things that I thought was really unrealistic is that they kept talking about how it was going to be a slow Monday. Yeah. If you work in an <laughs> ER or an ED, you never talk about any, you do not say the word slow. You do not say the word quiet. No. And no. probably every ER has, has its own set of words and phrases that you are not allowed to utter. So <laughs> making those jokes, those particular ones would not occur, at least in, in the settings that I know. You also don't talk about the weather, you don't talk about the moon, you don't talk about the tide. <laughs> <laughs> the full moon tonight. Oh, yeah. So no. those, are, those are all, but, but to me, those are all forms of, of humor in that superstition mm -hmm. in dealing with trying to understand, you know, why the universe is the way it is sometimes, that things just don't make sense, that things aren't fair or just. And so mm. if we're going to say it out loud, we're going to say it in a way that we can all stomach right here, right now, and in a quick form, too. Right. And as uh, Morgan Stern says, now, go work too hard. Yeah, I really loved Morgan Stern's scene with her. He just, he doesn't beat around the bush. He's not awkward about it at all. He's just naming the fact that she's just coming back from this suicide attempt and that he's concerned about her, that he's glad that she's back. He's glad that she wasn't successful. And, and then, yeah, now go work too hard. He just, he just puts it out there. I, I really like Goes him. Goes up like a good CPE supervisor almost. <laughs> yes, exactly. I think we need to talk about Dr. Lewis in this episode. Oh, yeah. It comes back to her again where she right. um, has another, let's see. She, she's clashing with the other doctors in consultation. Um to the point that she feels like it's hurting her reputation and she gets angry with her friends and staff members for not siding with her. Um, and I, part of me in my situation can't help but wonder if part of that is because she's female. Yeah, she's I wondered the same thing. She's trying to keep up with the boys, with the surgeon. She's joking with them about baseball and mm. you know different things that are going on in the halls. Mm -hmm. um, and yet she doesn't really feel like her voice is heard. She's interrupted. She's explained to. And in the end, she feels like her friends really let her down and don't say that um, the way she saw things was, was a possibility for a good outcome. But she's got two biases working against her. Not only is she a female, she's also young. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can see the way those sort of systemic biases show up in hospital systems and healthcare settings that um, you can't possibly, you know, know more than this um, older man who's been doing it forever since so you were in grade school or whatnot. And she's attractive. It's mentioned yeah. in several times in the first episode where she has a very snappy comeback for either a staff member or a patient who remarks on that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
Yeah, and what she does, I mean, it works. You know, the patient the patient ends up being okay without having to have surgery, and nobody really gives her any credit for that. But Dr. Kaysen was a jerk. Right. But I think one of the things that, that happens in, in several, both, both of these episodes that we're talking about today is that staff realizes that a lot of times you can't dwell on any particular case and you have to just move right on. Right. Dr. Benton mm -hmm. mentions that to Dr. Carter about one of the cases that he's called out on. And I think that um, she probably, Dr. Lewis would realize that as well. Deborah. Well, I was going to add, you know, you have a scene in there. Um, and I, since I'm just watching this for the first time, I don't know all the names really well. Um, so you guys can pipe in. But you have a scene where you have um, a third-year medical student, though he's white and dressed in a tie. And I'm setting the scene for our listeners, too. Then you have African-American uh, what is he, third-year resident? I mean, surgical. Yeah, surgical mm -hmm. resident. I mean, he's, he's, you know, he's awesome. <laughs> and he's dressed in scrubs. And then you have this white male patient who um, comes in, you know, with stomach pains. And so, um, you know, you've got kind of this, uh, or I saw in it, maybe some racial tension even mm -hmm. where you had, you know, a situation similar to what we were just speaking of where you have a woman who is treated differently. Um, and then in this case, I felt as if the patient didn't really trust, you know, this man's opinion just because, you know, who knows? He looked look different. He Maybe it's his black face. Maybe it's the fact that he's wearing scrubs. But, um, you know, he would take the, the um, opinion of a third-year medical student over this a surgical resident. Then you have another elderly uh, white male who comes in who sees this patient more regularly and knows his history and, you know, sides with just a simpler outcome and um, diagnosis. And so um, ultimately it was wrong. We, we learned that. Um, but I Dr. saw Benton. some of that. Yeah, yeah Dr. Dr. Benton was right. Thank yeah. you. And so I, I saw some of that, though, even with, you know, that it's not just a female doctor who would struggle with this. But I think Stacey, you know, alluded to that last week that we were going to start seeing this. And I certainly did. You know, you foreshadowed that for me. Um, but I think, you know, as a chaplain coming in, um, you know, and not having the full medical training that all of our coworkers do, sometimes there's a little bit of hesitation um, in those moments like, should I be at this table kind of thing? You know, we all have our own insecurities and anxieties in those moments. And I don't think we're, we're all that different, you know, because um, even doctors have that, you know, they're, mm. they're the ones that are, that are given um, credit when a life is saved. And, you know, and then they're the ones that are dealing with these life or death situations day after day. And yet they have their own anxieties and they're treated you know, with bias. And so I think that that in some ways, um, it just helps me to see them more as human and to relate to that kind of insecurity too that I feel, especially as a, a female minister. Mm. Yeah, when that other doctor came in, I guess the guy's personal physician came in and 
told Dr. Benton that he needed to stop showing off for his student with these complicated diagnoses, it just, oh, it just burned me up. And and it did bring up some of the same feelings that I got when people, other staff members at the hospital have called me honey or sweetie and dismissed what I was saying in front of patients, which does happen from time to time. Doesn't happen as much now that I'm 40 as it did when I was like 29 or 30, but um, but still happens from time to time and just always makes me so angry that those power dynamics um, definitely do come into play. And of course, and I put in my notes, of course, Benton's going to be right and he's going to have to save this guy's life. And that's exactly what happened. Um, so we're coming close to the end of our time. Um, does anybody have any final thoughts about episode three? Sarah Jane. One of my favorite parts. I, when I worked at the hospital, one of my areas of, of real interest was called nearing death awareness. And I did a lot of studying and reading on it and collected cases and wrote an article about it. Um, and Mrs. Packer, the woman who has leukemia, mm. who passed out in her kitchen and cut her arm, comes in and all she wants is stitches. She doesn't want any other treatment. But she has an awareness that death is coming, but she also knows that death is not going to be as imminent as everyone is afraid of. And the way that she can talk about it in such a frank and classy manner, mm. I just, I would have loved to, you know, have met her in real life. Uh -huh. um, and she's her, she's most concerned about going to her granddaughter's christening. Yes. So that particular scene when she's talking about she wants to participate um, in a ritual of life, basically, instead of living in the hospital waiting to die. And um, I, I think in the last episode, we also saw that the, when the, um, Mrs. Franks mm -hmm. woke up after she had some hydration, she had an awareness that her death was impending as well. They didn't have mm -hmm. to tell her. She was aware of it, and she was way more at peace with it than, than her husband was. And mm -hmm. those are things that chaplains we can look for and we can use. And, and I just I find those to be so interesting and helpful in understanding where our patients are coming from. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, anyone have any favorite lines, favorite moments from this episode that they want to share? Sarah Jane just touched on mine. Um, it was it was this woman who um, was neither courting death nor nor fleeing it. She just had um, a very authentic relationship with the fact that that this was her diagnosis and um, it was not too far down the road for her. Um, but she wanted to celebrate in. Um, the life of her family and the rituals and traditions of the church. And, um, and that is one way that, that we can be reminded of the hope that even though um, death gets the last word on this side of resurrection, uh, that there is still resurrection. And, and those promises um, that we remind ourselves and our church family of when we tend to these rituals um, in our faith communities. Um, they are the things that sustain us when death draws near. Mm. That's beautiful. Thank you. Um, my favorite moment, there were a few, but I think my very favorite one was when um, 
Miss Cavanaugh, Rosemary Clooney's character, is leaving and getting ready to get on the elevator, and she just hugs Carter and tells him that she loves him three times. It was just such a pure and childlike moment of of letting guard down and I'm sure part of that was her dementia but I really do think this bond had formed between her and Carter and to his own surprise I think he says I love you too and I don't think he was saying it just to be polite or to make her feel better I think he really was feeling that in that moment and um and I experience that sometimes as a chaplain too that just because these connections with people are brief it doesn't make them any less powerful and any less real um, so that was just a really beautiful moment between Carter and that patient. Mm. Deb. I want to add that as a chaplain, people sometimes really see us as the vehicle in which God is providing care and presence. And they see us as a messenger from God. And I have been told many times, you know, I love you in, in these kind of very um, intense moments that, that we're in with um, patients or family members of patients. And in some ways, I think that that is, I don't even know that they're talking about me, you know? I mean, I think that it is the presence that I've provided. It is um, the presence of the Holy Spirit. It is the presence of love. And so they're voicing it. And I have said that in return and then kind of, you know, like him, not maybe just in that moment. And, but it, I have thought about it and, and said it because I think that it, it doesn't even have to come from me. Like it's just what they need to hear in that moment coming from a person who represents God to them. And so it's a, it's a powerful thing to connect with a person on that level and know that the spirit is involved in that because they see us differently in providing that kind of spiritual care. Mm. I think to your point, Deborah, the, when we're talking about working in a healthcare setting and we're talking about the particular values that we're coming from in order to be spiritual care providers. Um, what is it that heals us? Um, what is the thing that is saving your life? Um, healing and saving your life ultimately for us is found in love. That. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think that's a great note to end on. Um, listeners, thank you for being with us. Sarah Jane, Carrie, and Deborah, thank you so much for being here with me. And um, we are in Turn Holy week. week. Yeah, so we are in Holy Week right now. So listeners, by the time you hear this, it'll be Easter. So if you are someone who celebrates that, um, I want to wish you happy Easter and hope that you'll be back with us next week as we continue our journey as chaplains watching ER. ER Chaplains Watching ER is produced at Top 5 Studios by my talented husband, Will Lawton. Music for the show is provided by our band, Rogue 2. You can hear some more of our great original songs at Rogue 2, that's T-W-O dot rocks. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app so other listeners can find us. Let us know your thoughts about the show on Twitter at chaplains underscore ER or comment on our Facebook page at Chaplains Watching ER. 
You can learn more about the hosts and find show notes for each episode on our website, chaplainswatching.net. Follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Stacy N. Sargent. That's S-E-R-G-E-N-T. I blog about hospital chaplaincy, step parenting, and other stuff at stacynsargent.com, where you can also find links to get my book, Being Called Chaplain, How I Lost My Name and Eventually Found My Faith. Join us right here next week for more insightful conversations about ER.